Hello, and welcome to Kroll Security Concepts Podcast, the podcast where Kroll security experts discuss the more prevalent topics in today's risk environment. This week, we're beginning our discussions of the changing environment and the managing of police forces. Our special guests this week are Chief Stephen Castevens and former Superintendent-in-Chief of the Boston Police Department, Nanny Linsky. Chief Castevens is currently the Chief of Police for Buffalo Grove, Illinois, and the President of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Chief Castevens has a distinguished career working in law enforcement since 1976, with highlights ranging from congressional testimony on police reform and safety to multiple publications and serving as an adjunct instructor at the Northwestern University Center for Public Safety. Daniel Linsky is a many-time guest on the podcast and runs Kroll's Boston office and our law enforcement consulting program. Uh, welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thank you, Jeff and Dan. I appreciate the offer uh, to be here and speak this morning. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Good morning, Jeff. Thanks for having us on. Good morning. It's it's great to have you guys on, two experts in the field, to talk about a topic that we really haven't covered a lot in this podcast, and that is policing and in more specifics, policing in the future as you're dealing with all of the changes that are certainly taking place across police departments that ranges from the mass retirements we're seeing in some large cities to cutting budgets uh, to just how you're going to do your job, how you're going to be able to do this effectively in the future and, and keep everybody happy and safe. So get into the conversation and tell me a bit about you know what you see are the bigger issues that we face today in trying to get to that next type of policing that will work for everyone, and, and really what you're planning to do to to meet those needs in the future. Well, thanks, Jeff, and that's uh, well, that's a million dollar question. Um, I've been in uh, law enforcement for 45 years now, and I've seen a lot of changes in our profession over the last four and a half decades, and uh, I, I will compare what we're seeing now relative to budget cuts and mass retirements, as you said, of police officers across the country, to something that we saw similar in 08 and 09. Uh, Prior to the 08 uh, market crash, uh, revenues were really good for most cities across the country. Police departments had a lot of uh, what we call um, specialty positions, I'll refer them to much like our detective divisions and our community-oriented policing units and our traffic units and our problem-oriented policing units. And we had a lot of those special units outside of your standard patrol officer units. And those units had the time and the capacity to connect with the community in a variety of ways. Uh, Police departments had their citizen police academies they, uh, they did a lot of community outreach. They worked with a lot of charities in their community. And then 08 hit, and police departments and cities across this country had to cut their budgets like we've never cut it before. And I worked for a different department at the time, and we had to cut millions and millions from our budget. And it got to the point where we had to lay off police officers. And you saw that across this country, over 10,000 police officers were laid off across the U.S. And here's what happened. Police departments had to go back to their core services of patrol. And that meant for many agencies, like my previous one, you had to disband those community policing and problem-oriented policing units and reassign those officers to patrol to make sure that you had enough officers doing your core function of answering calls for service. 
Well, then what happened over the years? Those units that used to be the outreach and the connection with your community were no longer doing that. And then as years went by, those positions were never filled. And now many police departments are paying for that because they went away from some of those community policing opportunities that they had. And they've lost their connection to the community. Obviously, uh, that is a big impact when you're trying to police the community and work with the community and have the trust of the community. So when you lose those specialized units because of budget cuts, obviously that's going to impact you. Today, we see the budgets are going to be cut. There's a lot of political pressure to cut budgets, and there's a lot of things happening out there. But the threats are increasing. We're seeing that the threat is there. The threat is ever-growing in some uh, markets. And if they're expected to cut back on things like these special groups that can reach out to the community and these groups that can work with the community to make sure that everybody's uh, happy with how uh, things are going, uh, how how are they going to be able to meet the needs of the community with less people and less budget? And I think that's the question that every department's going to have to answer, some of them to a greater extent than others. Uh, What do you guys see as as the, the bigger keys that they're going to have to tackle when they're trying to make this all happen? There's not only less budget and less personnel, but there's less trust in the police itself, right? So the very underlying confidence in police ability to keep their community safe has been eroded away. Uh, the recent events and protests uh, and social justice initiatives have shown that, you know, if we had a chief marketing officer for the law enforcement world, uh, we should fire them because a lot of good work goes on every day and our message hasn't got out there. And uh, we need to make sure we go back to the drawing board, right? So it's, you know, the police are the people and the people are the police or Robert Peel's principles. We have to go back and listen to the community as to how they want to be policed. Sometimes we in law enforcement think we know how the community wants to be policed. And quite frankly, we don't have it right. Um, they have, there is no cookie cutter solution. You know, Buffalo Grove is different than Boston. It's different than Plymouth, Massachusetts. And police have to work with the community to develop the police strategy uh, that the community wants, accepts, and will respect. And uh, I, I don't think the folks who are saying defund the police, I, I think it ought to be a refund the police because to do this, it's going to require additional units, as Steve said, to get away from the regular patrol side of the house and get out of the police cars and engage the community one-on-one. It's going to require additional training. You know, we, we've trained cops to do things uh, certain ways because that's the standards and that's the challenges they've been facing for years. And we've got to train them to do different things. I remember sending a police officer to a community meeting and I said, hey, there's a community group up there. Can you go up and, and meet with the group and uh, take care of the meeting for me? And I went up later on to join the meeting. And when I got there, my police officer was standing with his back up against the wall and his arms crossed standing at the door. And there were 25, 30 people talking about crime issues and, and community engagement issues on the on the table in the room. And I said, what are you doing? He said, well, sir, you told me to guard the meeting. Well, I, we had never trained him how to have a conversation with community members about developing a policing strategy. We trained him how to protect people and how to interrogate people and how to arrest bad guys. But I think we've got to look at how do we train officers and give them the tools to make sure that they have the ability to do the mission that – us and the community want them to do. And that's, you know, it's going to be a lot of work uh, and it's a challenge for sure. Well, and Dan makes a great point. Um, there, I don't think there is any such thing truly as, as community, as uh, American policing, because there are over 18,500 law enforcement agencies in the United States and every one of them is different. And the reason they're different is because their communities are different. There are different budgets. There are different community expectations 
depending on where the police department is located and what their community makeup is. So every police department has their own challenges. And so for that reason, Dan's right. There is no cookie-cutter approach or answer. But what we have to remember is our profession has changed so much over the years, and those expectations from our different communities have changed. And part of the issue I have with the defunding police, while it's a great soundbite, um, it's, a, it's a dangerous idea, and this is why I say that. If you look back to the 60s and 70s, our society at that time started to defund social services. They defunded mental health services. They defunded homelessness services. They defunded drug addiction services. And all of those societal issues were dumped on the doorstep of law enforcement. And to no fault of law enforcement, many of those societal issues have been criminalized. You look at the largest three mental health facilities right now in our country, it's Cook County Jail in Chicago, L.A. County Jail, and Rikers Island Prison. That's because we have nowhere else to put people suffering from mental health issues. I would have never thought when I became a police officer 40 years ago that my officers would have to be experts in homelessness, experts in opioid addiction, and all carry Narcan on their belts, and experts in dealing with mental health crises. But that's a reality of what law enforcement is today, because this, these issues have been placed in our lap, and we are forced to deal with them because there's nobody else to call. That's amazing that the fact that we have, I guess, this juxtaposition of different ideologies of what we should do with law enforcement. We all have the same goals that we want law enforcement to be there to support the community, to help the community, and to make sure everybody's getting what they need from law enforcement. But it just comes down to how we go about doing that. And you hear that across all of the the large cities that are talking about we need to have more, uh, you know, emotional support. We need to have psychiatrists, psychologists uh, going out on some of these issues because the police department, they might not have that capability under their belt. So, when it comes to prioritizing uh, the training of the new officers, are, are there any of the big things that we really need to make sure that, uh, you know, as we go about developing police academy programs, that we're trying to cover certain topics, uh, not just because they're important today, but because they will be part of how law enforcement is managed, you know, over the coming years? I, I was going to say one of the important things I think we need to teach young officers, especially, is how we got here. Right. So the history of policing, um, why is there uh, an issue of trust with law enforcement in the United States? And that's the recent events, right, that we've seen play out like George Floyd and others. Um, there's the events that didn't really happen, but nonetheless, you know, uh, the appearance uh, that law enforcement did something wrong is there. And then there's just issues and tensions between the uh, communities, especially communities of color, that, that need to be understood by cops who maybe had no life experience with that. I went into a police academy class a while ago and I asked the young recruits, you know, what do you know about the Abner Louima case? And they looked at me like I had two heads. They'd never heard of it. And if they don't know about a police officer who brutally sodomized uh, a prisoner uh, who he thought uh, was a suspect in a case who turned out wasn't, uh, they can't understand why people don't trust all police officers. And they have to start out with the fact that, uh, you know, there are some issues and concerns in the community. I remember my commander at our uh, promotion ceremony, our swearing in, we finally got our badges, said, you know what, go out and make some friends. 
because when you put that badge on, you have all the enemies you'll ever need. And, um, you know, that that's what we need to teach our young officers to go out and build their own relationship with the community and to understand that it's going to take time because people before them might have strained the relationship with things they did. And I can have to pay for the sins of a cop in New York or Chicago, and Chicago police officers have to pay for the sins of a cop in Boston. We're human beings. We're accused from the human race, and people make mistakes. Uh, and unfortunately, our mistakes play out on the front pages, and every mistake we make erodes that trust. But at the same time, Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of police officers across the country are doing the right thing, trying to help people, trying to make a difference in their community and to to, uh, to keep people safe. And we've got to get that messaging out and we've got to listen as well as we speak. And you're right, Dan. And as police leaders and even as police officers in my agency, we know that the trust and the support of our communities is the bedrock of successful policing. It, it is in any community. But at the same time, while in the last several months, policing has been the focus, this is not just a policing problem. This is a total, a whole criminal justice issue. And our community members and our elected official as well play a crucial role in moving these constructive efforts and these constructive conversations forward. Um, there is a I think there's a critical need to establish uh, shared expectations between the police, the community, and the elected officials. We need to educate our community about police policies, about operational practices. This is, again, why uh, those citizen police academies and the ride-alongs are so important. These are so such simple concepts. Um, but if communities want to change police operations, then it's our job as police leaders, we need to inform the public of, of these potential costs, of the advantages, of the disadvantages, so these communities and our, and our leaders, as well as our residents, can be more informed and help make appropriate decisions. How is it even possible to be the manager of the future without really getting the groundwork laid today? And how is that going to happen with the number of people and the time and, and just the resources that the typical department has. And that's really, you know, what a lot of this conversation is. How do we actually make this happen? You have all the ideas, you know how to do it. What do you prioritize? What do you run with? And how, you know, how do you look? Do you look to outside resources to provide training for your personnel? Do you go to specialized training? Do you send people back through the academy? I, just the number of questions that come about for just having this conversation, you know, there's just a huge amount of questions that come to my mind as we try to make this happen. <laughs> Mine as well. <laughs> uh, I couldn't agree more, Gup. Um, first of all, my first answer is, um, in its most simplistic explanation, community policing is not a specialized unit. Community policing is a way of doing business. So whether I have my full complement of officers or where, whether I have, as right now, I've gone into 2021 with a 10% reduction in my sworn staff because of budget cuts, because of retirements, early incentive retirements, and those positions cannot be filled because, like most other police departments across the country, we're experiencing losses in revenue that are COVID-related. Um, so we have to be creative as police leaders. We still have to meet our mandates 
of serving our community, of answering our calls for service, of protecting our officers, of providing our officers with the training that they need uh, and the support that they need. We have to be creative. But again, when it comes to police community relations, it's a way of doing business. It should be the bedrock of every single police officer and non-sworn employee of every police department. The way you speak with people, the way you contact people. Um, I always train my police officers, and I, I stole this years ago from an executive at Disney. And uh, he was speaking at a leadership conference, and he said, we've always heard in the business world that the customer's always right. And he said, it's interesting, at Disney, we don't believe that at all. We believe that quite often the customer's wrong. However, we believe also that they're allowed to be wrong with dignity. And that's how I train my officers for every single public contact they have, every traffic stop, no matter what it is. You're going to encounter people who did something wrong. They blew a stop sign. They caused a crash. They ran a red light. They passed on the shoulder. They were speeding, whatever. They did something wrong. Allow them to be wrong with dignity because that's where community policing starts. Quite often, it's on a traffic stop, which is most likely the very first time a resident of your community is going to come into contact with the police. It's not they called the police because their home was burglarized. It's not because they were robbed. It's because of a routine traffic violation. That's where community policing starts. And that's where we have to remember, we have to go back to those core ideals of where does community policing begin. It's exactly what you say, Steve. Um, the most successful police officers have the ability to communicate and talk with people with respect, right? So you're a narcotics officer. No one tells you where the drug house is. You have to develop information by getting someone to give you that information. Either somebody who's, you know, you arrested and uh, is giving up competition or a, a citizen in the community who trusts you enough to give you that information. And that's uh, – over my office, all the officers I had uh, since I was a sergeant, I always wrote my mother's words up on the blackboard. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Uh, and, and if that's the bedrock of how you police your community, uh, I think we'll do okay. Even though we've got budget cuts and, and more challenges and more resources, but treating people with respect and allowing them procedural justice where they understand, okay, I blew the red light. You have to pull me over. Maybe I need a ticket. Maybe I don't need a ticket. In one instance, Jeff, we uh, we had a shooting of a young boy in a park, and uh, we weren't getting any cooperation with it. And ordinarily, we would surge the area with cops and we'd have, you know, 100 cops. We'd make arrests and we'd do traffic citations so that we could show that we were doing something, right? We wrote 100 citations means we're around the area. Well, in this particular case, I surged it with our motorcycle unit and I had them do a bunch of traffic stops. But instead of writing citations, we gave the citizens who had blown red lights and had expired stickers or what have you, we gave them text-to-tip brochures and said, look, a young child was shot in the park. We're hoping to bring some conclusion to the case and make sure we keep it safe around here. If you hear of anything, can you let us know? That way we engage the community in helping be a solution to the problems that were plaguing their community. And at the same time, we enforced the traffic law. We put them on notice that you can't run red lights. But there wasn't as big a negative consequence, and they actually saw us as a positive where, geez, I'm not, I'm not have to pay a ticket. I don't have to pay the insurance company hundreds of dollars, and you're actually asking me to help you with crime in my community. And, and that's the type of things police have to do across the country to build trust and to uh, do the day-to-day operations even when they're asked to do more with less. Excellent. So I know both of you guys are heavily involved in the International Association of Chiefs of Police as a president and, and members. Um, 
is this something that, you know, is essentially part of the overall curricula of what you guys are meeting on and then discussing and where you're heading? I, I assume when you have these great things, the program of putting out the, the motorcycle deployment to pass out the uh, text or, or tip uh, line numbers, is this something that gets shared where everybody's able to share this great information? And do we see that as kind of that community of law enforcement officers that are sharing the, the best uh practices that they have developed across their departments? Oh, absolutely, Jeff. I mean, that's that's part of, uh, of the beauty of the IACP is, you know, we have 100 and we have 31,000 plus members in 165 different countries. And while I've learned my membership at IACP over the last 20 years, um, no matter where you're at, what police department you're at in what country, we're typically dealing with the same type of issues. And um, I'm always looking, not just in our country, but other countries, how are people approaching, you know, issue X with homelessness or with uh, drug abuse, et cetera, Uh, because we all learn from the great ideas of others. And so this is this is part of of the beauty of IACP. And over the last year, IACP has been working incredibly hard uh, developing new tools for our members, for community police engagements, um, everything from bias, uh, free policing, uh, new recruitment and hiring tactics, because uh, as Danny can attest to, we don't get the number of recruits for recruits uh, applying for a police officer's job like we used to. <laughs> Back when I uh, first uh, applied for a job in another uh, city here in the suburbs of Chicago, there were 1,100 applicants the day that I applied. Um, now, I am happy if I get 70 or 80 applicants. And so we're not getting the number of people interested in law enforcement that we used to. There are, there are more tech jobs. There are more other, there are other opportunities. But also, because of everything that's gone on with, uh, within the last year, with all the attention in our profession, people aren't just coming to this job like they used to. So it's much more difficult for us to recruit and retain good police officers. So we, as leaders, uh, we look to IACP even more for good ideas on how to accomplish our mission. And it would, it's a shame that we don't have the numbers because, you know, the younger generation have new ideas, new thoughts, new ways of doing business um, that would be helpful in changing law enforcement. No business can say stagnant. Law enforcement is is a business. And uh, the good news about IACP, it's, it's just as doctors and professionals go to, um, you know, conferences and locations to talk about what medicines work. Uh, what medicines didn't work, uh, what uh, treatments are best for patients. It's a great way for law enforcement professionals to find out what's working in other communities that they sh- can, quite, you know, quite frankly, steal, put their department's logo on it and use back home. No sense in reinventing the wheel if there's a good program out there that's already proven uh, and, and has a uh, substance that can be brought back to your city or town. Makes sense. Yeah, it, when it comes down to all of these uh, topics that we're discussing, I know we could go on for hours uh, discussing all the things that really, you know, are on the forefront of law enforcement, uh, large cities, small side cities, cities in between. Everybody's going to be changing their programs to keep up with the times, I guess we'll call it. Um, are there any uh, other 
big ticket items that uh, you guys want to chat about a bit on this uh, podcast, dealing specifically with, you know, those those things that really need to be addressed and some ways that we might go about addressing them. Some of our audience that might be in law enforcement or management of law enforcement. Well, Jeff, I'm going to pass it off to Steve, and and I think we're in agreement here. But if you, you know, and I'm going to, I'll, I'll tee the question up to Steve. If you're a new police chief, a new police supervisor who's coming in to take over a department, what are the things that you should be doing uh, before you, you know, put you behind in that seat and begin to take over uh, your own challenges? Because the, there were challenges there before you showed up for work, right? That someone else had. What does a new police chief, new police commissioner, do once they take over a department? Yeah, that's a great question, Dan. And, uh, you know, uh, certainly from what I've seen in some of the uh, issues with uh, law enforcement agencies across the country who have had significant problems, whether it's an officer-involved shooting, a use-of-force issue, um, it, it pains me for some of the agencies to find that some of their policies and procedures are so incredibly outdated. Um, uh, this is not a commercial for Kalia for accreditation, but I am glad that my department is accredited because this forces us to look at all of our policies, our general orders, our procedures every year and to make sure that they're updated uh, with, with the latest language. For example, use of force policies. Everybody is, uh, is asking law enforcement agencies right now that you should update your use of force policy uh, specifically to ban chokeholds. 90% or more of police agencies have policies for years that have already banned chokeholds. Those policies have already been in place. Um, but those are not the type of things that we advertise. Um, other issues such as uh, there's legislation in many states that are, that are trying to mandate the police department's report their use of force data to the FBI National Use of Force Database. Um, the greatest percentage of police departments are, in fact, already doing that. But again, these are not the types of things that we advertise. If you're a new police chief coming into a, an agency, these are the types of things you need to look at right away. The thing that's going to get you in trouble is your policies, your procedures, and your officer training, or lack thereof in any of those areas. So this gets into broader conversation of, hey, if we're going through budget cuts, then how are we training our officers? How can we afford to train our officers? That's one of the big issues I have right now with some legislation in Illinois and other states that are mandating additional training, additional training, but they're providing no funding to go along with that legislation to mandate additional training. There's legislation in Illinois trying to mandate body cameras for all law enforcement agencies in the state, much like other states. But it's an unfunded mandate because not only is there no funding attached with the legislation, there's actually a punishment attached with the legislation if the law enforcement agency does not outfit their officers with body cameras, they'll lose a certain percentage of their local government distributive fund, their tax rates back from the state. So uh, that's not a carrot and stick. That's a punishment. And body cameras are not cheap and the training behind them are not cheap. Um, so I'm all for additional training for officers, but there has to be funding attached with that. It's hard to hold a, a law enforcement agency accountable for training when you've taken all their funding away. Yeah, I agree, Stephen. That's why we need to look at, you know, 
the block grants that we used to get from the federal government, uh, the, the feds have to step in and try and you know standardize training and the opportunity for training for law enforcement throughout the country. So some officers in big cities have more opportunity for training than officers in small uh, towns, uh, but they all have the same challenges and needs. And I think we've got to come up with a way to provide that uh, and provide training uh, that, that prepares. Our job is to make sure officers have the tools they need to do their job. And one of those tools, the biggest tool, is training. And if we're not giving them the training, we can't expect when something goes wrong that uh, they're not going to have a problem or a challenge. And, and we got to hold ourselves accountable if we're not providing the tools to our officers. Training's always the first thing that people want to cut out of budgets. It's easy not to take officers uh, off the street and to, to have them continue to do their 911 calls uh, instead of spending a day at the academy learning. We've got we've to get away from that mindset. We need officers to learn and we need officers to uh, – to, to identify what we need to provide them with, what what training is most helpful to them. Sometimes we in the in the you know stay the fourth floor at Boston Police Headquarters think we know what the officers need, but in fact that should be a conversation with the frontline troops to see exactly what they need, uh, and that conversation needs to occur with the community as well. Thank you, gentlemen, for sharing your time with us and sharing your expertise. I hope everyone enjoyed uh, this particular session. We'll be back with more on the future of policing, we'll call it, uh, podcast in the, in the near future. Hope to see you soon.